This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode is part of a long series about the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States through the life of William Jennings Ryan and the Scopes Monkey Trial. It can stand on its own, but it will make a lot more sense if you go to the beginning of Season 5 and work your way back. King John had really stepped in it. He took the throne in 1199. And here are some things he inherited. A bad financial system, high taxes, wars and conquests, debt from the Crusades, and Crusades don't come cheap. Then there were the problems John created for himself. Like a war with France. How you say, prepare for battle. Oh yeah, and due to some complicated stuff, John was excommunicated by the Catholic Church. Like I said, King John had really stepped in it. And his predecessors had this ritual. Every time one of them became king, I crown thee king. They made an agreement with the nobility to let them know what their relationship would be, their rights. It was essentially a DTR between king and nobility. John, for whatever reason, did not make this agreement. So it looked like he might be headed for a civil war led by his barons. To avoid a civil war, he and the nobility came to an agreement on June 15, 1215. This document, the Magna Carta, is often referred to as the first constitution in Europe. The first time a British king was held in check, couldn't do whatever he wanted to do, And if he did, the nobles could go to war with him. The king was finally under the law. He faced real consequences for his actions. Now, imagine not knowing what to expect from your leaders if they had unconditional power, no checks and balances. That's mayhem. But in the late 1800s in the United States and Britain, we started to see the rise of Christian ministries run without a law, without a Magna Carta of their own, no oversight, with dominant charismatic leaders who controlled publishing houses, colleges, schools, conferences, books, lecture tours, every form of communication with few restrictions from denominations. And their template was D.L. Moody. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. 
Our first mini-series, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. I covered D.L. Moody in-depth two weeks ago as an evangelist and philanthropist. Today, we'll talk about some of the people he influenced who will recur this season— And in the next episode, I'll talk about one of the ideas he shared that shaped fundamentalism. Okay, here goes. When Moody spoke, his message was simple. What he called the three R's. So yes, the heart of Moody's theology had three pillars. Ruin, redemption, and regeneration. This is Kevin Belmonte. He wrote the biography D.L. Moody, A Life. We heard from him in the last episode. And it's helpful to know those three R's. Of course, all of us are sinners saved by grace. We understand what falls under the rubric of ruin. Redemption, of course, is Christ's atoning work where we place our faith personally in Christ as Savior and his atoning work. But then regeneration, that can be a bit cumbersome, but really what it means is we are all given a new nature in Christ when we come to faith. That's really what that's pointing to. And that that regeneration should lead to a transformation of heart and mind. So that's really the heart of Moody. Ruin, redemption, and regeneration. Simple stuff. Not a lot of us and them anger. So it's funny that some people point to Moody, this lovable, affable, folksy guy, as the progenitor of Christian fundamentalism. Moody was not a fundamentalist. George Marson wrote that he couldn't be one because he was opposed to controversy. As Moody said, People are tired and sick of this awful controversy. Amen, Moody. He was what you'd call ecumenical. He reached across denominational lines and didn't pick a lot of fights. Like Billy Graham 50-odd years later, he was loved by Christians of all kinds. But after Moody... A bunch of guys he mentored mixed things up. I picture Moody like a lake. Calm, glassy waters. Easy to love. But the water that flows out of that lake becomes a bunch of creeks and rivers, eddies and pools. Some of them are pretty chill, while others are full of rapids. There were all kinds of outcomes that radiated from Moody and his influence. We won't be able to cover them all in one episode, but hopefully I can just start to paint the picture. Take you on a little canoe ride down some of these rivers. So this is how Moody, again, not a fundamentalist, dealt with controversies when he heard them. Christ's teaching was always constructive. Let us hold truth, but by all means, let us hold it in love and not with a theological grip. His method of dealing with error was largely to ignore it, letting it melt away in the warm glow of the full intensity of truth expressed in love. Kind of sweet, right? 
Preach the good stuff and the error will fall away. Let's contrast that with Reuben Torrey, one of his lieutenants. Torrey had a different idea about how Jesus reacted to heresy. Christ and his immediate disciples immediately attacked, exposed, and denounced error. We are constantly told in our day that we ought not to attack error, but simply seek the truth. This is the method of the coward and trimmer. It is not the method of Christ. A little different, right? It's combative. These guys looked at the same scripture and found two contradictory philosophies about handling controversy. Tory is just one of the guys in Moody's orbit, one of his lieutenants. He had a whole group of them like James Gray, Arthur Pearson, A.J. Gordon, Charles Blanchard, and William Erdman. We'll be spending a bit of time in future episodes talking about two more, C.I. Schofield and William Bell Riley. These guys took the pattern of Moody, preach the gospel, found schools, write publications, establish a mailing list, and replicated it. Preach the gospel, preach the gospel, found schools, found write publications, publications, establish a mailing list. Creating their own little empires and added in this combative edge. Here is George Marston, author of Fundamentalism and American Culture, professor at Calvin College and professor emeritus at Notre Dame. I think that it's sort of like the feudal system in the Middle Ages that you have these fiefdoms that you have one strong leader and they're kind of competitors or kind of allies. It depends on the situation, but they're, they're working independently. And you know, that, that continues to be a very strong element in American Christianity, or you get people who use uh, Charles Fuller using radio ministry or you know, later people like Pat Robertson or, or uh, Jim and Tammy Baker, people like that, that, that just build an empire on their own ministry. And, and there's that going on on the national level and then all sorts of people on, on more local levels. Amy Semple McPherson is is one of the first women to do to do that in in Los Angeles and just has her own brand. And you just build your own brand and, and sell it. And at the end, it's sort of the American way. Not dissimilar from what William Jennings Bryan did with his publications, speeches, and mailing list. He didn't need to rely on mainstream media for coverage, you know, which, depending on your leanings, sounds great. And creepily familiar to today, right? These guys were their own thing. But there are inherent risks to this model. These fiefdoms were not accountable to anyone outside of their immediate organization. Like King John from the beginning of the episode, before the Magna Carta. Freewheeling. Little denominational oversight. Or really anybody but their charismatic leader and a few people on staff. Circle folks around a brand. As Dr. Marsden said, it's the American way. A bunch of the lieutenants I named went on to pioneer the fundamentalist movement, even though they didn't agree with each other on every detail, even as they literally wrote the book on fundamentalism. Let's take Reuben Torrey, who I already quoted, as an example. Torrey was really into premillennialist dispensationalism especially the idea that we can break the Bible into different eras. Put it in a box! It's essentially the idea that history is sliding into chaos, God will return, 
save Christians from the bad stuff, and then there will be a tribulation. George Marston points to this combination of ideas as key elements in building fundamentalism. A bunch of Moody's lieutenants were premillennialist dispensationalists, not just Tory. So he's got this negative view of history, and he spreads it far and wide. Tory was perhaps the closest to Moody's successor, addressing thousands of people in a single lecture. He started as a frontier missionary and pastor in the burgeoning town of Minneapolis. He planted several churches, led a missions board, and caught the eye of D.L. Moody, who made him the head of the Bible Institute of Chicago, what would later be called the Moody Bible Institute, a school that was founded by someone who was not a fundamentalist, but would soon become a hub for fundamentalist radio, publishing, and education. It referred to itself as the West Point of Christian Service. Sir, yes, sir! Sounds tough, but it's a lovely place. I visited several times. Tory preached at the Chicago Avenue Church and was an outspoken critic of liberal theology. He and several other lieutenants went on to write the important but underread publication, The Fundamentals, a series of pamphlets that stated the fundamentalist case years before the term fundamentalist was coined. We'll cover it in depth soon. It was essentially the Federalist Papers for Fundamentalism. I'm still waiting for Lin-Manuel Miranda to make a show about that. I'll keep the phone lines open. Tory gave evangelistic sermons to lots of people, like Moody did, but his demeanor was decidedly different. Moody was folksy, lovable. That's not how people saw Reuben Tory. One author called him incongruously pompous. Another commentator said, On the street he usually wore a hi-hat and he always talked as though he had one on. Throwing some shade there. Tory had a reputation for being stuck up. He was apparently immune to emotional persuasion. As a biographer put it, Rather he was swayed by the logical element of cold reason. Another said of him, He lectured, exhorted, and argued with grim determination often seeming more intent on saving his own version of the truth than upon saving souls. All of that to say, he was big on ideas. Maybe not as driven as Moody was by evangelism. So that's Tory. And he's a good stand-in for Moody's lieutenants with their own fiefdoms, their us-and-them dark view of history. To them, the Christian life could feel like a war, And one of the battlegrounds the lieutenants focused on was higher education. Colleges and Bible schools were instrumental in this movement. You may not know it, but a lot of our secular Ivy League colleges and universities were originally Christian schools. Harvard, Puritan, William and Mary, Church of England, Princeton, Presbyterian, Yale, Puritan. But traditional Christian influence over higher education waned as liberal theologies crept in. In just a few decades, institutions of higher learning shed the visions of their Christian founders. Little by little, that historically Christian influence was dropped or limited. So these guys, Moody's lieutenants, reacted by creating new Christian schools. 
Tori helped build Moody Bible Institute and Biola, A.J. Gordon founded Gordon College, William Bell Riley, the Northwestern Bible Training School, and C.I. Schofield, the Philadelphia School of the Bible. But remember, this season is all about actions and reactions. If Christians stopped going to these historic schools, your Yales and Harvards, is it any wonder that those schools lost their Christian influence? It's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. What came first, the exodus of Christians or the loss of Christian influence? And what this did was create a new Christian bubble. If the world won't have us, we'll create our own subculture. What we see at this stage is a burgeoning pattern. Little fiefdoms with charismatic leaders and honed brands. An us-and-them attitude spread by people like Moody's lieutenants at conferences and through evangelism. A pipeline that allowed kids to go from elementary school to Sunday school to youth group and then college with minimal secular influence. All with little denominational oversight no real accountability. Theologically conservative Christians dove deeper and deeper into their own subculture. Christian magazines, festivals, songbooks, groups for kids and teens, and on and on. You even had people looking at William Jennings Bryan and describing him in almost messianic terms as their hopeful for President of the United States. Many of these things existed to some degree before the 1800s. But this is when all these disparate pieces came together, solidified into a more cohesive Christian bubble. In the next episode, we'll get into one of the big ideas that accelerated the formation of the bubble. For now, I want to circle back to the Magna Carta, that document from the beginning of the show. What made it so powerful is that it placed limits on the king. These Christian fiefdoms often had little accountability with the denominations, allowing extreme ideas to not just spread, but to breed new, more extreme ideas. I wanted to do a whole episode on this concept because there is a good chance if you're a Christian right now, you are being impacted by a fiefdom of some sort. Let's be honest, even this show has pretty low accountability. As George Marson said, it's the American way. It's how our system is designed. But it doesn't have to be that way. How should we rethink our bubble, our accountability structures? King John avoided a civil war by placing himself under accountability. We evangelicals find ourselves at our own crossroads today, angry at each other and the world with some people literally talking civil war in the United States. Is that really necessary? Or can we learn from Britain in 1215? Should we draft a Magna Carta of our own? Special thanks to George Marsden, author of Fundamentalism and American Culture. We also heard from Kevin Belmonte, whose book about Moody is D.L. Moody, A Life. You can find a complete list of sources for this episode at trucepodcast.com. 
I'm also indebted to Nick Steren, who helped me make sense of all this information. Thanks also to my Patreon supporters. By giving a little each month, you help me make this show. And donors have access to bonus episodes, video chats, and special features not heard anywhere else. To help out, visit patreon.com slash trucepodcast. I also want to hear from you. As you know, I don't have a lot of time to deal with a board or direct oversight on the show because I also have a full-time job. But can we, together, devise some system of accountability to model to other shows? Let me know your ideas on social media or by emailing me at trucepodcast at yahoo.com. I'm also indebted to all the people who gave their voices for this episode. Eric Nevins of the Halfway There podcast, Jerry Dugan from Beyond the Rut, Carl Klemmer, and Michelle and Shay Watson of the Lipstick and Pantry podcast. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. God willing, we'll talk again soon. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.